Well, hello there. You might want to pull up a chair. I have quite a few things to go over today um, because I'm working on this massive, massive timeline. <laughs> um, let me pull open the file here. Just because things are not really adding up <laughs> as far as how things are working out. Um, but first, well, let me see here. So thank you for joining me. Um, I'm going to be covering a few things, and then I will play a clip about the Frankfurt School, okay? The Frankfurt School is where all this stuff, a lot of people online will talk about, oh, it all started with Tavistock. No, it didn't start with Tavistock. It started with a group called the Frankfurt School, okay? And I'll be getting into that, um, because this timeline is important to work out, because there's something fishy about the Vietnam War. And it's looking to me like possibly, um, you know, how the U.S. was busy, supposedly, um, and not involved in World War II because they were busy with the Manhattan Project. And then, um, well, they were doing the Manhattan Project and they were doing photography of the bombing over in Nevada. And those photographers were sending those pictures to Lookout Mountain in California, which is a government movie place. And then they had Japan, right? So then they bombed the nuclear in Japan. So it, it appears to me that while they were hanging out and not involved in World War II, they were rather busy building nuclear bombs, right? And then there's some strange things about how Japan had been in charge of Marshall Islands where all the huge disasters and was taking place. So anyway, so I'm looking at all those dates because things just aren't adding up. But anyway, so this is a very interesting one. And also I'll be getting back to this um, because I've been trying to explain that they have needed to learn who we are, okay? So this part about the Frankfurt School becomes interesting because it happens in the early 1900s, okay? So, possibility, these people got charged, you know, got in charge, what, late, late 1800s still, right? Because all the dates still keep going back to that, because it appears to me that the early 1900s, beginning with this um, Frankfurt School, it, it, it molded over to the United States. The Frankfurt School plan became the United States plan for all of our schools and <laughs> everything else. And it's also what we're hearing about now with all this critical critical theory business, okay? And a lot of it, I frankly am just foggy about, okay? Because everybody's talking about, well, critical theory and blacks and whites, it, you know, I'm fuzzy about it. So what I'll do is today, I'll explain how all of the critical stuff got its roots, actually, in the Frankfurt School as well. This stuff all connects. It just takes a lot of digging around. So, yeah, these are things that... Uh, but anyway, before I get to all that, because I found a couple of really great articles about the Frankfurt School that I'll get to next, okay? But I had to laugh after the last show because um, Bill Gates is all over the news now pushing his um, AI... <laughs> Bill Gates, the headline was, 
AI is most important technological advance in decades, but we must ensure it is used for good. <laughs> well, it looks to me like it's going to be used for meme generation, right? <laughs> because it's that kind of AI that doesn't make any sense, right? So, yeah, the pump and dump begins. Um, and just another piece of the news, <laughs> just another light piece of news. <laughs> Scientists um, in Los Angeles. Now, this was, um, well, this was this week, okay, yesterday, and today's the 24th. Um, scientists uncover startling concentrations of pure DDT along seafloor off LA coast. <laughs> Well, I did a, I talked about DDT, and uh, yeah, well, they're still using it, so don't kid yourself. So, yeah, so um, it said, first it was a <clears throat> eerie image of barrels leaking on the seafloor not far from Catalina Island. Then the shocking realization that the nation's largest manufacturer of DDT had once used the ocean as a huge dumping ground. And that as many as half a million barrels of its acid waste had been poured straight into the water. Well, isn't that lovely news? <clears throat> now, scientists have discovered that much of the DDT, which had been dumped largely in the 40s and 50s, never broke down. The chemical remains in its most potent form in startling high concentrations spread across a wide swath of seafloor largely larger than the city of San Francisco. We still see DDT on the seafloor from 50, 60, 70 years ago, which tells us that it's not breaking down the way we once thought it should. <laughs> the way we once thought it should. <laughs> they don't think about anything but destruction, okay? So anyway, so says this UC Santa Barbara scientist who shared these preliminary findings Thursday during a research update with more than 90 people working on the issue. <clears throat> he goes on to say, and what we're seeing now is that there is DDT that has ended up all over the place, not just within the tight little circle on a map that we refer to as dump site 2. These relevations confirm some of the science community's deepest concerns and further complicate efforts to understand DDT's toxic and insidious legacy in California. The Times reported in 2020, well, that DDT was banned in 1972. Yes, I've talked about this. I believe, uh, I, you have to check me on this, okay? I believe that... DDT, although it's supposedly banned in this country, if, I, if I'm remembering correctly, okay, that the U.S. still manufactures DDT to export to other third world countries. So I'm not 100%, but I think that what usually what happens is once they ban something in one place, then let's start exporting it to every third world country that they get their hands on. So I, I, as I remember, I'm just going to remember here, okay? Significant amounts of DDT-related compounds continue to accumulate in California condors and local dolphin populations, and a recent study linked the presence of this once popular pesticide to an aggressive cancer in sea lions. And I would also like to remind you, please get your pets on distilled water also, because 
cancer is going to show up worst case in our pets first. So get them off of this stuff. So, um, what's this talking about? Um, anyhow, so, um, Bill Gates is so into this stuff that, um, I'm not going to read you his whole <laughs> letter, but he has this thing called the, um, Gates something, and, um, you can go read it there. Anyway, so, he, I'll read part of it. Climate change is another issue where I'm convinced AI can make the world more equitable. The injustice of climate change is that the people who are suffering the most, the world's poorest, are also the ones who did the least to contribute to the problem. I'm still thinking and learning about how AI can help, but later in this post, I'll suggest a few areas of life potential. No, I'm not going to read them all. So he said, in short, I'm excited about the impact that AI can have on issues that the Gates Foundation works on. And the foundation will have much more to say about AI in the coming months. The world needs to make sure that everyone, and not just people who are well off, benefit from artificial intelligence. And here we get good. This, this is where the money will start to roll in. Governments and philanthropy will need to play a major role in ensuring that it reduces inequity and doesn't contribute to it. And this is a priority for my work related to AI. Good for Billy Boy. Good for Billy Boy. A new, any new technology that's so disruptive, <laughs> disruptive of what? The meme business? The people who do the, um, the gifts and the memes? Okay, any new technology that's so disruptive is bound to make people uneasy. And that's certainly true with artificial intelligence. See, this is how they build it up to make it look like it's just got the matrix hiding right behind it, right? I understand why. It raises hard questions about the workforce, the legal system, privacy, bias, and more. Also, make factual mistakes. Where we well, I don't know what he's talking about. But anyway, so yeah, he thinks that, see, what they have to do is make it all important, right? So, um, he went on to say, um, he's talking about the robust debate <laughs> needed the computer industry. <laughs> he said, technically, the term artificial intelligence refers to a model created by, to solve a specific problem or provide a particular service. What is powering things like chat GPT is artificial intelligence. It is learning how to do chat better but can't learn other tasks. By contrast, the term artificial general intelligence refers to software that's capable of learning any task or subject AGI doesn't exist yet. There is a robust debate going on in the computing industry about how to create it, how to create it, and whether it can even be created at all. Okay? Developing AI and AGI has been the dream, the great dream of the computing industry, cha-ching, cha-ching, for decades. The question was when computers would be better than humans at something other than making calculations. Now with the arrival of machine learning and large amounts of computing power, sophisticated IA, I, 
AIs, the artificial intelligence, are a reality, and they will get better very fast as soon as we get your investment money rolling into the, into the universities, <laughs> into the nonprofits. He went on to say, <clears throat> I think back to the early days of the personal computing revolution when the software industry was so small that most of us could fit on stage at a conference. Today it is a global industry. Yeah, the scams really worked, doesn't it? <laughs> Such a huge portion of it is now turning its attention to AI and the innovations are going to come much faster than we experienced after the microprocessor breakthrough. Soon the pre-AI artificial intelligence period will seem as distant as the days when using a computer meant typing Control-C prompt rather than tapping on a screen. Boy, those were the days, weren't they? Although humans are still better than GPT, a lot of things, there are many jobs where these capabilities are not used much. For example, many of the tasks done by a person in sales, digital or phone service, or document handling, like payables, accounting, or insurance claim disputes, require decision-making, but not the ability to learn continuously. Corporations have training programs for these activities, and in most cases, they have a lot of examples of good and bad work. Humans are trained using these data sets, and soon these data sets will also be used to train the artificial intelligence that will empower people to do this work more efficiently. Now, you want to go back to my show that I just did about um, how much work <laughs> it takes to train these AI computers, right? So he's very casually just acting like, you know, this stuff just all going to happen, right? Where are they going to get the workforce to pick this stuff out? So I'll just keep reading. As computing, po computing power gets cheaper, GPT's ability to express ideas will increasingly be like a white-collar worker available to help you with various tasks. Microsoft describes this as having a co-pilot, Fully incorporated into products like Office, artificial intelligence will enhance your work. For example, by helping with writing emails and managing your inbox. Yes, I'm already starting to influence a little bit of that right now, I might add, because um, it keeps trying to get me to <laughs> go along with their suggestions when I was just fine typing it. Um, <clears throat> I can see the future of this spinning madly out of control, I might add. Okay, I'll keep reading. Eventually, your main way of controlling a computer will no longer be pointing and clicking or tapping on menus and dialog boxes. Instead, you'll be able to write a request in plain English. And not just English. Artificial intelligence will understand languages from around the world. In India earlier this year, I met with developers who are working on artificial intelligence that will understand many of the languages spoken there. In addition, advances in artificial intelligence will enable the creation of a personal agent. Think of it as a digital personal agent. It will see your latest emails, know about the meetings you attend, read 
Excuse me, this thing is sounding creepier and creepier. Okay, it said, think of it as a digital assistant. It will see your latest emails, know about the meetings you attend, read what you read, and read the things you don't want to bother with. This will both improve your work on the tasks you want to do and free you from the ones you don't want to do. Well, thanks, but no thanks. I am doing just fine, Mr. Gates. <laughs> You'll be able to use natural language to have this agent help you with scheduling communications and e-commerce, and it will work across your devices. Because of the cost of training the models and running the computations, creating a personal agent is not feasible yet. But thanks to the recent advances in artificial intelligence, it is now a realistic goal. <laughs> Some issues will need to be worked out. For example, can an insurance company ask your agent things about you without your permission? If so, how many people will choose not to use it? Company-wide agents will empower employees in new ways. I guess that they're talking about this 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 helper that he starts to. Re it's called the agent. Okay, so because I say an agent that understands kind of a creepy name, the agent, right? <laughs> Company-wide agents will empower employees in new ways. An agent that understands a particular company will be available for its employees to consult directly and should be part of every meeting so it can answer questions. It can be told to passively, to be passive or encouraged to speak up if it has some insight. It will, we're still talking about this agent, right? Like a robot or something, right? It will need access to the sales, support, finance, product schedules, and text related to the company. It should read bad news related to the industry the company is in. I believe that the result will be that employees will become more productive. Now, I just read you <laughs> directly from his page. <laughs> and I'll continue on. This is just too good to stop. When productivity goes up, Society benefits because people are freed up to do other things at work and at home. Of course, there are serious questions about what kind of support and retraining people will need. Governments need to help workers transition into other roles. But the demand for people who help other people will never go away. The rise of artificial intelligence will free people up to do things that software never will. Teaching, caring for patients, and supporting the elderly, for example. Global health and education are two areas where there's great need and not enough workers to meet those needs. Those are areas where artificial intelligence can help reduce inequity if it is properly targeted. These should be a key focus of artificial intelligence work, and I will turn to them now. So he goes on to talk about health care workers, and uh, he, he gives an example. He's talking about poor countries, okay, uh, where the vast majority of under five deaths happen. 
He goes on to say, for example, many people in these countries never get to see a doctor, and artificial intelligence will help the health workers they do see be more productive. The effort to develop artificial intelligence-powered ultrasound machines that can be used with minimal training is a great example of this. Artificial intelligence will, give, will even give patients the ability to do basic triage, get advice about how to deal with health problems, and decode whether they need to seek treatment. Don't we already have uh, Google and Wiki right now? <laughs> The A1 models used in poor countries will need to be trained on different diseases than in rich countries. They will need to work in different languages and factor in different challenges, such as patients who live very far from clinics or can't afford to stop working if they get sick. People will need to see evidence that health artificial intelligence are beneficial overall, even though they won't be perfect and will make mistakes. AIs have to be tested very carefully and properly regulated, which means it will take longer for them to be adopted than in other areas. But then again, humans make mistakes too. And having no access to medical care is also a problem. See how they're starting to inject the, um, whatever comes out of this, any disasters or mistakes is going to benefit the whole of society, right? That, that, that's probably where this is leading to. But I'm just guessing, okay? In addition to helping with care, AIs will dramatically accelerate the, the rate of medical breakthrough. The amount of data in biology is very large, and it's hard for humans to keep track of all the ways that complex biological systems work. There is already software that can look at this data, infer what the pathways are, search for targets on pathogens, and design drugs accordingly. Well, that's interesting to know. Some companies are working on cancer drugs that were developed this way. How about if they just cut back on our exposure to radiation and that will and um, dioxins and that will probably con conquer most of the cancer in this country, right? I hate to be Captain Obvious here, but this all sounds like wonderful stuff. I don't be stop and think about why does everybody can't why does everybody in the United States have such high rates of cancer and heart disease? Well, look no further than dioxins, right? Um. So, yeah, so he wants to make it so that they can affect the poorest people in the world by AIDS and TB and malaria. Um, governments and philanthropy should increase incentives for companies to share insights. Oh, boy, here we go, right? Okay. Um, he thinks in the next five to ten years, AI-driven soft, AI -driven software will finally deliver on the prom. Oh, this is good because next five to ten years, that, that gives them a pretty good window for fundraising, right? Um um, he has a little thing about the risk, but really this is not all that interesting, right? <clears throat> this is all about, he's trying to lay it on the line as far as what his views are, so he can then be quoted in interviews and stuff like that. So, anyway, you can go, go read it for yourself. He, he thinks that AIs are our future compared to the computer. We're just going to be so much better off because this is how the pump and dump starts, right? Okay, so there's doing the initial pump and dump. Okay, so here's the fun part. Uh, Oh, let me read his closing because it's pretty good. He says, I'm lucky to have been involved with the PC revolution and the internet revolution. I'm just as excited about this moment. 
this new technology can help people everywhere improve their lives. See, here's the premise with these people I'd like you to think about, okay? They always come at us with the idea that we're full of flaws and that we need them to rescue us from our pathetic lives, right? So it always is the slant in their dialogue for selling these things. And then remember, they need to get us to work to give them tax dollars to then help us fix all of our problems, right? <laughs> Are you starting to notice how this all works? So anyway, so they, 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 all they want to do is help us. Just leave it at that, okay? So he says, at the same time, the world needs to establish the rules of the road so that any downsides of artificial intelligence are far... Okay, here we go. Here we go. <laughs> the downsides always have to be better. So... So that any downsides of artificial intelligence are far outweighed by its benefits. You should tell all those people that got lobotomies and stuff that, you know, society really learned from all that, right? And so that everyone can enjoy those benefits no matter where they live and how much money they have. The age of artificial intelligence is filled with opportunities and responsibilities. <clears throat> so you're looking for, he publishes this thing called Gates Notes, okay? So I was cruising around. I did that show recently about the royals, you know, the royal people and the Greta scam with Greta Thunberg scam with the um, climate thing going on now. Well, I mentioned a group, um, and I, I barely scan these people because I basically do not know what the European royals look like. But all these people are being played by European royals, okay? So, um, they have Bill Gates over there, and um, since I'm talking about Bill Gates today with the artificial intelligence, <laughs> this is how the pump and dump works, right? They get out in front of it, like they put Greta out in front of it to get everybody all, all worried about, you know, the world's coming to an end, we must invest in blah, blah, blah. And then the rest of their people, like any good camp of gypsies, then circle the mark, okay? The people with the money. So this now they will be circling the, the universities. Any taxpayer pot of money they can find is what they're circling at this stage of the pump and dump, right? So anyway, so they... <clears throat> The really specific way to identify somebody is by the biomarks in the ears, okay? <coughs> and over on my website, um, I have um, a man, well, you can just go to his YouTube page. His name is um, Mitchell, M-I-T-C-H-E-L-L-E, and his last name is Brooks, B-R-O-O-K-S. Now, you have to go to his first because he hasn't been around in years, but he just rolls along from the beginning. And what he shows you is in the early days, the early days of movies, so it would be a good idea to take a look at now because I'll be talking about movies next, hopefully. Um, in the early days of movies, they were all playing different roles, right? So, um, for example, the only photographic person that we know is Hitler is actually Walt Disney. Now, Walt Disney is obviously some royal person. That we don't know. But this person's work encompassed, he was early into doing the ear stuff. Because back then, <clears throat> they weren't hiding their ears. Now the royals are hiding their ears. And they have all ways to do it. Because you ought to see some of these. You can get a, a mask. 
<laughs> really easy. As a matter of fact, the big news now, people are saying, hey, is Putin really one person? Well, yeah, because <clears throat> these masks are really good. Okay. Anyway, so this group over there, my point here was this. <laughs> this group over there has now identified who they're pretty sure is Bill Gates. And this just happened in the last day or two. Okay. So let me read what they had to say. And this is from the Facebook group called um, Royal Actors. <clears throat> it says, we were on the wrong track with Bill Gates again for years. I once mentioned in the winter of 2019 that Bill Gates was played by Prince Klaus of Holland. And so far, this has been taken by almost everyone without asking. This Annette person was the only one here in the group who had once expressed doubts and said that Bill Gates looked more like King Philippe of Belgium, and he does. They have the pictures over there. Go look for yourself. So they're saying that <clears throat> Bill Gates looks like King Philippe of Belgium. He went on to say, This afternoon, I wanted to compile improved picture comparisons for the match between Bill Gates and Prince Klaus, and I had to realize that the eyes and mouth wrinkles do not match between Prince Klaus and Bill Gates at all. This reminded me of Annette's intuitive and intuition and also so that I tried with Philippe and nearly fell off the bench. Perfectly clean matches where possible. I could even match the young King Philippe from 1980 to the young Bill Gates. Furthermore, I could match the young Bill Gates to the young John Lennon also played by King Philippe of Belgium. So it's King Philippe of Belgium also plays young John Lennon, okay. The match King Philippe of Belgium, Bill Gates, is proven even bombastically consistently by following, because what happens is what, what they find in these groups, obviously, is that this King Philippe of Belgium the same kids you will see him play acting other roles will be his same kids, okay? So <clears throat> they drag around their, their same kids and stuff, okay? So uh, one, Melinda Gates is played by Delphine Boyle, B-O-E-L, -E who is the extramarital daughter of ex-King Albert to a Belgium at least according to the official version, which does not have to match the truth. The daughter is an extramarital, okay? Bill Gates' son, named Roy John Gates, is played by Prince Gabriel of Belgium, who is a son of King Philippe. Bill Gates' daughter, Phoebe Adele Gates, is played by Princess Elizabeth of Belgium, who is the daughter of King Philippe of Belgium. Catching all this, kids? <laughs> okay. And she goes on to say, It really can't be any clearer. And I still remember Annette saying to me back then, The kids look so Belgian to me. Sorry that I didn't believe you back then, Annette. I should have been open to your real suggestion, because direct face comparisons between Bill Gates and Prince Klaus almost didn't fit at all. So yeah, so we're talking about that dude. King Philippe of Belgium plays the role of Bill Gates. <laughs> and obviously also this other character, right? 
um, John Lennon, young John Lennon, whatever that one is, okay. And then I think the boys in Silicon Valley, you know, the tech, bo tech bros, <laughs> I think the public's a little bit tired of them. But, you know, as long as they can still go on vacation without people being, being disgusted, um, I just want to read you this clip here. <laughs> as a particularly galling display, a new high for a trend that's been on the rise for some time. Amid con congressional hearings and dipping stock valuations, the tech elite have bemoaned the so-called tech lash against their industry by those who worry it's growing too large and unaccountable. Waving away legitimate questions about the industry's labor inequities, climate impacts, and civil rights abuses, they claim that the press is biased against them and that they're besieged on all sides by woke critics. If only they realized just how good they have it, historically speaking. It was mere decades ago, after all, that the Silicon Valley elite faced the active threat of actual non-metaphorical violence. The most adamant critics of big tech of the 1970s didn't write strongly worded columns chastising them in newspapers or blast their politics on social media. They physically occupied their computer labs, destroyed their capital equipment, and even bombed their homes. What they're saying is in the 70s, people actually rose up and did things, right? So they're saying, hey, these tech elites are saying they're complaining about the press talking about them, right? Um, so they're comparing historically to when people, you know, chastise them in newspapers. Yeah, as a matter of fact, um, when I was going through the lawsuit with Intel, I would have to say the most favorable people in general, there were a couple people that were favorable outside of that, but two of the most favorable people to my, <laughs> to my plight against, against that big bad wolf Intel were the couple of the local major reporters in the area, okay? They treated me very, very fairly. They, you know, they had obviously knew what was going on, okay? So anyway, so uh, because uh, this was in the 70s, right? Uh, people and people people stood up against the Vietnam War, you know. They tamed us, T-A-M-E-D's, with these devices. But I'll continue on, okay. So so w what they're saying is back in the old days, people would have stormed their offices and stuff. So I want to say Tech Lash, oh, shoot, wait a second here. Okay, Tech Lash is what Silicon Valley ownership class calls it when people don't buy their stocks, says Malcolm Harris's author. Today's tech billionaires are lucky people. Our lucky people are making fun of them on the internet instead of firebombing their houses. That's what happened to Bill Hewlett back in the day. That was the founder of Hewlett and Packard. So they said today's tech billionaires are lucky people are making fun of them on the internet. See how it goes? See how it goes? And because last time I had talked about cocaine and then I have this view that a lot of these people are in fact on cocaine and I said that in the 70s I had in fact used it for a couple of years it was part of the party scene in California okay and I'm not saying that well I didn't have to do it <laughs> I'm just saying that's what it was <laughs> and I see very strong 
behaviors. That's all I'm trying to relate here. And I see very strong behaviors to that same crowd <laughs> that I once <laughs> hung out with, okay? So there was this article that happened to catch my attention. <laughs> it said, Vladimir Putin is high on speed. Putin, wait a second here, wait a second here. I really try to watch it with this microphone. Jesus, so it picks up every time I lip smack or something. Okay, so Putin made a speech on the 16th of January. Oh, excuse me, 16th of March. That's why I always verify it. 16th of March, and we're right now in the 24th of March. Okay, so he made a speech on 16th of March in Moscow at the Congress of the Russian Union of Industrialists and Entrepreneurs. Somebody claimed that his rambling speech shows that he is under the influence of strong drugs. And it said, uh, if you, this guy said, his name is Soleb, S-O-L-O-V-E-I. Now, this isn't just me. This is this guy saying it, okay? (laughs) This guy made the quote um, on some news thing, and it said, this is his direct quote. If you watched at least part of the speech to entrepreneurs, you can see a person high on speed, as young people say, meaning someone using powerful stimulant drugs. Yeah, you know, they all are. They all are. Um, Remember, in a show months ago, I talked about that they actually had... um, um, cocaine available in U.S. pharmacies up until I think it was 1926 or something. Um, you could walk in there and, <laughs> and buy some. Um, it's it's like their favorite thing. What, what do you think that Afghanistan was all about? <laughs> I mean, come on, do the math, okay? All of those poppy fields, you know, they needed a cheap way to feed the opioid epidemic. So they spent 20 years. Uh, now remember, I'm just guessing here, okay? So the ingredient they need for opioids and for all these things <laughs> happen to come from a region of the country they have to be fighting in, okay? <laughs> and that country also had an increase in their poppy crops during set occupation. So you, you just do the math for yourself. <laughs> so, so, you know, that became, you know, that fed into the opioid deal, which was highly profitable, but you know now, you know why why knock yourself out in some fields over some things when you can just uh, come up with something like fentanyl and a drug. So, anyways, so that's that. So, on to the subject of the day: the Frankfurt School. So, while I catch my breath here for a second, things are very rough around here right now. Um, <laughs> not complaining, just my spot on the game board. But I gotta say, it's a pretty tough spot to be in. I suggest you get some windows and don't do what I do and let it go too far. So let me see, where is this file? I had a good show about the, um, it's a quick clip about the um, Franklin. Okay, it is called, because here's, here's my basic overview. And remember, just now getting to this, I don't have any real, you know, crazed out ideas one way or the other, but nothing is adding up with this communism thing for me, right? Because we had Ho Chi Minh over there in Vietnam, 
educated, you know what I mean? No, nothing started to add up, and we have been divided by communism, right? Well, what color is communism? Well, it is red, the, the Saturn color, right? So, this whole communism thing and how it has shifted between um, the Frankfurt School and over to this country is just pretty interesting. So, let's play this short clip, and I think this show today will likely leave you as confused as I am, but now we'll have the basic components. Because when people online just start throwing out weird things, like, yeah, it all started at Tavistock, it's like, no, no, wait a minute, that, that wasn't true. Okay, so we always want to look at the base of how this goes. So let's, let's try to learn today what we can find out about the Frankfurt School, okay? Because this is a pretty interesting thing, because also in the 20s, based on all of this work, remember, we're the insects <laughs> under the glass on this game thing, right? So, yeah, they got to learn about us, and they got to learn how to manipulate us. So let's play this. This clip is about six minutes, and it's called What Nobody Tells You About the Frankfurt School. So you can find it easily on YouTube. So let's go. And what the hell did I have it on? Let me see here. Huh. Wait a second. Let me just refresh real quick. Okay, here we go. Hmm. <laughs> Why is it always and about my speakers? Okay, wait a second here. <laughs> People see that. I'm just, a, I'm just a genius at the auto. So let, let me get this back here. Okay, here we go. Projects to try to transform human nature and restructure society. The Frankfurt School is often mentioned in that connection, and people see that as the root of much of the cultural subversion that we see around us in the West at the moment. And you point out rightly, I think, that the Frankfurt School flourished more in the United States than it had in interwar Germany, and that many of its core ideas about combating prejudice and the authoritarian personality became so profoundly Americanized that they informed American concepts of democracy. I think that is a perspective that people don't often hear, the idea that the Frankfurt School is in some sense homegrown in the U.S. How did that happen and why? Well, I, I, I argue this in several of my books. You know, it's interesting you raise this point because my... Uh, my editor, acquisition editor, <clears throat> asked me to write this book for Cornell uh, in NIU Press. They're sort of they've merged now. Basically, what they're figuring out is that, um, well, it all started from this country, right? They got over here. They got they start doing all this stuff because just look at the distinct pattern between the United States and Germany. The SS, you know, they love those jagged S's. You know, Secret Service, we had the SS. Early on, before the CIA, it was called the OSS. <laughs> I mean, they're, you know, the early SSS was founded by the Pinkertons of this country. So, yeah, these people are certainly heading in the right direction in their discovery that, yeah, <laughs> this stuff cooked up here, but just happened to have traveled to Germany and Russia and stuff. So let's continue on. 
she found that idea absolutely uh, unsettling and not entirely convincing. She says, you know, isn't this a German thing? Uh, and I said, well, you know, from, and then after 1933, it became an American thing. Mm. Uh, these people moved here, and uh, they, you know, they were based in New York. Also, don't forget, 1930, I won't interrupt every two seconds, but 1933 was a year that all U.S. citizens were declared enemies of the state. And that's never been lifted. Now, anything I'm saying, you could just type into that little device on your own. U.S. citizens declared enemies of the state, 1933, never lifted, okay? And then this Frankfurt School, 1933, right? Also, the FDIC, our banking stuff, 1933. So a lot happening around that 1933 range. So here we go. Oh, you know an interesting thing, too? Around 1933 was when they brought out reefer madness. (laughs) Because at one point, they were encouraging farmers to raise hemp. And about exactly at that time, look it up, 1933 era, they came up with reefer madness because they had to get the public to see marijuana as being deadly. Well, because they were over here cooking up the real deadly stuff, right? Doctors and psychiatrists to examine us and give us pills and stuff. So, yeah. And it's just interesting when you look at these times, how these junctures happened, right? Almost like it's just part of the game board, right? So, yeah, 1933, they're manipulating our brains. We're already we're declared enemies of the state that same year. Yeah, so, boy, it's interesting. It's interesting because it all starts to really fit together. And, boy, am I really glad that I decided to, I don't know, maybe you know this or don't know this, but I decided several years ago that I would just, record my work as I went along because otherwise I would have do all the work for a few years and then stop okay um well (laughs) I um kind of bundled up and so um I disconnected myself so let me pick up from where I'm pretty sure I left off because I had just played that clip and stuff um okay so I have a little bit of the history here, and then somebody wrote a very interesting piece which ties all this together into the, um, well, just what's going on in the schools and stuff today and how this was the manipulation point. But first, let me start off here. The Frankfurt School was a group of scholars known for developing critical theory and popularizing the dial. excuse me, and popularizing the dietetical method of learning by interrogating society's contradictions. It is most closely associated with the work of Max Horkheimer, Theodore Adorno, you'll see that name a lot, A-D-O-R-N-O, Eric Fromm, F-R-O-M-M, and Herbert Marcuse, M-A-R-C-U-S-E. It was not a school in the physical sense, but rather a school of thought associated with scholars at the Institute for Social Research at the Institute, excuse me, Social Research at the University of Frankfurt in Germany. Okay, so it's part of the University of Frankfurt in Germany, okay? Um, In 1923, Marxist scholar Karl Grunberg, G-R-U-N-B-E-R-G, so we're at 1923, okay, 
founded the Institute. Um, I have to keep compulsively checking to make sure I'm not disconnected. <laughs> okay, so this Carl Grunberg founded the Institute in 1923 and was supposedly a Marxist, okay? Initially financed by another such scholar named Felix Weil, W-E-I-E-L. The Frankfurt School scholars are known for their brand of culturally focused neo-Marxist theory, a rethinking of classical Marxism updated to their socio-historical period. I know it's a mouthful. This proved seminal for the fields of sociology, cultural studies, and media studies, okay? Um, and what happened at first was this person, that Max Horkheimer, um, in the 1930s, actually, became the director of the Institute and recruited many of the scholars who came to be known collectively. And these are important words. Once you start to know these words, you can just go off on it as an adventure, okay? They became to known collectively as the Frankfurt School, okay? In the aftermath of Marx's failed prediction of revolution, these individuals were dismayed by the rise of orthodox party Marxism and a dictatorial form of communism. They turned their attention to the problem of rule through ideology or rule carried out in the realm of culture. That's R-U-L-E, like rule. Like they were learning how to rule us is how I read this, right? So, um, oh shoot, um, culture, um, they turn their attention to the rule through ideology or, or through culture. They believe that technological advancements in communication and the reproduction of ideas enabled this form of rule, okay? And I'm going to close this off for this second because I hear a big truck coming my way, and I will pick it up in just one second on the other side. Okay, like they say, wooden foot in front of the next. Um, so we had a 1930s Max Horkheimer became the director of the Institute, recruited the scholars, and here's where it gets interesting. I, I attest that these people are still Romans from Italy, okay? Their ideas overlapped with Italian scholar Antonio Gramsci, G-R-A-M-S-C-I's theory of cultural hegemony. Other earlier members of the Frankfurt School included Frederick Pollock, Otto Kirchheim, Leo Lowenthal, and Franz Leopold Newman, N-E-U-M-A-N-N. -N. Walter Benjamin was also associated with it during its peak in the mid-20th century. And they all, to me, appeared to kind of like travel as a group, right? One of the core concerns of the scholars of the Frankfurt School, especially Horkheim, Adorno, and this other person, was the rise of mass culture. So this phrase referred to the technological developments that allowed for the distribution of cultural products 
music, film, and art on a mass scale. And boy, didn't they ever start really pumping out those fake pictures, right? You know, if you look at a lot of those statues, most of them are what I would say would be resin pours or some sort of cheap. Um, <laughs> so, okay. Um, so the mass culture, okay. Um, consider that when these scholars began crafting their critiques, radio and cinema were still new phenomena and television didn't exist. So this is really at a very key point here, right? And why all of a sudden at that, this point here in the 20s did they need to kind of get us under the glass, right? <laughs> like bugs, right? Okay, so... Um, so yeah, everything was new. They objected to how technology led to a sameness in production and cultural experience. Technology allowed the public to sit passively before cultural content rather than actively engage with one another for entertainment as they had in the past. These scholars theorized that this experience made people intellectually inactive and politically passive as they allowed mass-produced ideologies and values to wash over them and infiltrate their consciousness. So right there they figured out that they want people to sit passively doing content, right, rather than actively engaging. The Frankfurt School also argued that this process was one of the missing links in the missing links in Marx's theory of the domination of capitalism and explain why revolution never came. Well, yeah, because <laughs> Marcuse took this framework and applied it to consumer goods and the new consumer lifestyle that had become the norm in Western countries in the mid-1900s. He argued that consumerism functions in much the same way, for it maintains itself through a creation of false needs that only the products of capitalism can satisfy. And this is the key, key, key point here, okay? Yep, this is a key point. They knew that they had to do these things, so then they had to set about figuring out how, right? So, um, Given the state of pre-World War II Germany, Horkheimer relocated the Institute for its member safety. You're right. <laughs> In 1933, it moved to Geneva, and two years later, it moved in affiliation to New York with Columbia University. Ding, ding, ding. In 1953, well after the war, the Institute was reestablished in Frankfurt. So, um, yeah, so now they start moving back and forth, right? Um, and they actually um, got their roots in the Russian deal, okay? This, this thing just, got, you know, they all... <laughs> <laughs> These are all the same key players, okay? They're selling communism, and they think, well, maybe we should sell communism because that scares them more. So, yeah, so obviously the plot is in with this Frankfurt group, right? Okay, so I found an interesting thing that I'll close up here with. And this was a 
article written by a name named Alex Newman, N-E-W-M-A-N, dated March 2021. And it says, and he, he kind of capsulated what I said, what I, my thoughts are about all of this. So I thought, well, why not just read what he has to say? Okay, he says, the title is, Frankfurt School Weaponized U.S. Education Against Civilization. It was initiated in 1946, um, but see, he, he has this part wrong, okay? He, he talks about it being Travis Stock, but let's just start off with where he gets back to the city. And he went on to say, understanding that future generations are the key to building political power and lasting change, socialists and totalitarians of all varieties have gravitated toward government-controlled education since the system was ever formed. These are his words. The communist Frankfurt School was no exception in its affinity for educating the youth. And he went on to say, um, almost 100 years ago, because that would have been the early 1900s, 1920, a group of socialists and communist thinkers led by Marxist law professor Karl Grunberg, G-R-U-N-B-E-R-G, established the Institute for Social Research at Goethe University, Frankfurt, in Germany. From there, they would move to the United States. And from their new home in New York City, the subversive ideas they espouse would eventually infect the entire planet like a deadly cancer, mostly through the education system. <coughs> the Frankfurt School, I'm continuing to read from his article, the Frankfurt School was a group of scholars known for developing critical theory and popularizing the method of learning by interrogating society's contradictions. Okay, so the group which is very interesting. This is what I'm talking about. The heading of his thing is a cultural revolution. The group actually had its genesis in Moscow before officially, uh, officially becoming founded in 1923. And you remember, too, Moscow and all these countries during World War II were you know, Moscow was in there taking it for the team, right? Then afterwards, like, oh, got to have the Red Parade. Got to help, you know, see, see what I'm saying? So, um, so they said the group had been started in Moscow in 1923. By the early 1920s, the Bolsheviks, um, this guy, Italian guy, they said he would conclude from his Italian prison cell they realized a change in tactics was needed in the early 1920s. The much-anticipated violent revolution of the product predicted by Karl Marx to bring about communism, it turned out, would be much more difficult in Western Europe and the United States than previously anticipated. In fact, it wouldn't be possible at all without first breaking down the cultural barriers to collectivism, they reasoned. As such, the Communist International and mass murdering Soviet, excuse me, okay, the Communist International and mass murdering Soviet dictator Vladimir 
Lennon, his minion, Carl Raddick, arranged a meeting at the Marx Eagles Institute in Moscow. Among the participants, according to historical records, were Soviet secret bosses and these people from the school. At the Moscow meeting, the conspirators decided that what was needed was a more gradual cultural revolution, or what especially came to be known as cultural Marxism in the West and beyond. Cultural Marxism is what they're talking about. To advance that program, the subversives agreed on a sinister but brilliant plan. This would involve the destruction of traditional religion and the Christian culture it produced, the collapse of sexual morality, and the deliberate undermining of the family and a wrecking ball to infiltrate and demolish the existing institutions. Some of these men had experience. For example, Lukacs, L-U-K-A-C-S, who served as Minister of Education and Culture in the Bolshevik Hungarian regime of Belakum, had introduced all manner of per perversion and grotesque sex education in public schools starting in elementary school. It was part of a campaign to, to destroy bourgeois Christian morality and sexual ethics among the youth. The objective was to eventually de-Christianize Hungary, thereby facilitating a total communist restructure of the human mind and of all society. And you also have to kind of wonder about, you know, during these periods that I'm talking about now, a lot of these countries, you know, like Cuban self were closed out to outside people for years, so was China. I mean, you know, <laughs> a lot of restructuring going on, right? Okay. And let me continue reading here. Um, a key tool of these conspirators in Moscow would come to be known as the Frankfurt School. From the Institute at Frankfurt and later in New York, these culture revolutionaries would promote feminism, communism, atheism, mass migration, globalism, humanism, multiculturalism, nihilism, hedonism, environmentalism, and all sorts of other isms that tend to undermine individual liberty, traditional culture, and morality. Rampant morality-free sexuality and Freudian pseudo-psychology were central to the agenda. To anyone who has studied America's public education system today, which spends far more time peddling these isms to captivate to, to captive children than providing actual education, the stench of the Frankfurt School's machinations is unmistakable. In fact, the whole system reeks. Despite some differences, let me continue on here. Despite some differences, the group maintained close ties with the Soviet Union. Ironically, though, analysts have long argued that the work of the Institute peddling Nietzsche and others helped lay the foundation for the National Socialist takeover of Germany. You know, these people all connect, don't they? <laughs> As the Nazi regime of Adolf Hitler gradually parted ways to the more internationally minded socialist tyranny of the butchers in Moscow. The civilization destroyers at the ISR fled to the United States. Well, these people are really on the ball, right? They're noticing that these people are the same people, right? With Rockefeller money, Dewey 
would play a key role in helping the Frankfurt School's operatives put down roots in America. More on the role of the major foundations in subverting Americans' education will be detailed later. The, impor the importation of Frankfurt School luminaries was a much with a match made in totalitarian heaven as Dewey and his disciples have, have much in common with the cultural Marxist social revolutionaries. As previously recounted in this series on education, for example, Dewey was a devoted fan of the Soviet model. In fact, he wrote glowing reports about the supposed successes of Soviet consumerism in the New Republic magazine. Dewey was especially infatuated with the indoctrination centers masquerading as schools, and particularly how they were instilling a collective mentality in the children. Dewey's collectivism, anti-Christian religious humanism, also appealed to the Franklin operatives. Once the Institute minions set up shop, set up shop at Columbia at the New York and other prestigious U.S. academic institutions, the Frankfurt School's rhetoric had to change, at least superficially, as Americans were still ardently devoted to God, country, family, and individual liberty. And so instead of speaking openly of Marxism and communism, Franklin School subversive spoke of dialectical materialism, Instead of attacking the family, they attacked patriarchy. But the agenda remained the same. Yeah, they're big on all those attacking stuff, aren't they? Um, <laughs> that's where it comes from, right? Always good to get to the root of how this stuff happened. So the next section here is called Fighting Fascism. Almost as soon as they arrived, they began plotting the destruction of America's traditional values, religion, and form of government under the guise of fighting fascism. What this person is noting is that this is all on purpose, right? So I'll continue on. Indeed, the luminaries of the Frankfurt School, who represented a wide variety of disciples, used education as a crucial tool for advancing their totalitarian, their totalitarian civilization-destroying philosophies. But they infected much more than just the educational system, with their sick ideas spreading out like a poison throughout the intellectual veins of America, the social sciences, entertainment, politics, and beyond. One of the ways in which Frankfurt School operatives and academics advanced their desired social change via education was so-called critical theory. In his 1937 work, Traditional and Critical Theory, ISR director Max Horkheim argued that critical theory, a neo-Marxist tool used to demonize the market system, Christianity and Western civilizations were aimed at bringing about social change and exposing the alleged oppression of people by capitalism. Another useful tool for undermining freedom and traditional society was the 1950 work by key Frankfurt School theorists called The Authoritarian Personality, 
And this person went on to say, these social researchers claimed to discover that the traditional American male and father was actually authoritarian because, among other reasons, he held traditional values. Thus, if patriarchy and the traditional family, among the most important barriers to tyranny, came under relentless attack as a precursor to fascism. Public schools were viewed as tools to combat this alleged problem, and they did so vigorously. To understand just how central teachers, just understand how central teachers college, and then he went on to say, infested by Franklin School and Dewey DEWI ideas, would become to the public would become to the public education in the United States. Consider that by 1950, estimates suggest that a third of principals and superintendents of large school districts were being trained there. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? By 1950. They've just been recruiting, and, and whenever they could, um, you know, they would need to recruit a lot of us to do these things, but I've been saying that they've been doing a shedding process, right, as they start to infiltrate with more of their own kind in many ways, right? <laughs> okay, so... Um, but I'll continue reading from this person's perspective, okay? Of course, the damage to America from anti-God, anti-freedom German intellectuals began even before the Frankfurt School migrated to Columbia. In fact, Dewey was trained by C. Stanley Hall, who was among the many Americans to study under Professor Wilhelm Wundt, W-U-N-D-T, among other notable highlights, once WUNDT pioneered the idea of the human as a soulless animal. Essentially, he viewed people as biological stimulus response mechanisms that could and should be trained in a manner similar to circus animals. <laughs> I'd laugh even harder if this wasn't so true, right? This Darwinian, Dar Darwinian <laughs> materialistic view of the human being reigns supreme today in the education system that has been catastrophic. Fringe left-wing extremists who support the, Franklin, the Frankfurt School's anti-American agenda have dishonestly attempted to paint criticism of the relative institutions, academics, and their ideas as anti-Semitic. But in reality, the dangerous ideas pose a major threat to Judaism too, and so countless patriotic and liberty-minded Jews have also joined the fight against the Frankfurt School's poison. The threat of these subverses and their cultural Marxism has been recognized at the highest levels of the U.S. government, well, we know that none of this is true, so let's just skip over this part. <laughs> He's going, he went on to say that Donald Trump is getting involved. Um, uh, so, to this day, reflecting the ISR influx of the early 1930s, Teachers College remains a leading purveyor of socialist poison masquerading as education. Um... Yeah, so that's how the Frankfurt School uh, got our school system set up. It's really pretty interesting stuff, so I would encourage you to take a further look. Um, so this is the point of 
you know, clearly to me, they had it in their minds to put devices and things in our hands, no matter how they worded it, right? Keep us busy. You know, that was the that was the time in the 20s when they came up with the um, the public relations and marketing the movies. So. I'll be back with more of that because I wanted to address this first with all the segment because this shows the um, how they were getting us mentally prepared, right, for the 1930s. <laughs> I kid you not. So yeah, so interesting game board, right? So I'm still not sure exactly what it is because uh, there's just a lot. Supposedly uh, Pentagon. Yeah, uh, this list that I'm putting together includes all the times that the um, U.S. CIA invaded countries all the times so that these things happened and just <laughs> uh, it, it, it's becoming quite an interesting list okay and um, it will help me to take a look at because it appears to me appears to me not sure yet but it appears to me that you know at the very beginning of what was called the Vietnam War when supposedly it was just the French in the early 1950s, the U.S. had all these, uh, they called them advisors and stuff in there, right? All their team of people. Well, it certainly appears to me that uh, when the advisors were there, between the time the advisors were there and the actual uh, blowing the whole country up with Agent Orange, there's some um, interesting dates that I'm looking at there. You know, same kind of deal what they did with, you know, Bikini in those places, you know? Curiously, they happen to be doing those bombs um, to be ready to show up with them, like right after they said, oh, we're not neutral anymore. So yeah, in this week's news, it's kind of interesting that they got Silicon Valley Bank first, which would give it a California location. They all got bailed out. They got the French. <laughs> and I just saw that Deutsche Bank is in trouble. Well, Deutsche Bank is probably the dirtiest bank of all. So they've got three points now covered. They got the U.S., they got the Swiss, they got the Deutsche. But anyway, i got to get off here. So... Yeah, here, here is why we look for how these things got started. So you can't run around and say it was all the CIA just putting devices on our hands. It was planned from these people at the Frankfurt School who interestingly started in the... You know what I mean? It, just, it, it proves my point that they're all... It's, it's, it's a group of them that are taking on different roles. And what better role than to act like you're like some sort of communist, right? A communist with a red Saturn color, right? So they always want to present us with two sides to give us more conflict or to give us more diversion from what we should be thinking about. And remember, we have our own information. This is why they felt this need to go in and reprogram ourselves, right? Because we wouldn't need... <laughs> therapists and doctors to sort us out and so in order to sell this like I say evil has to come packaged and help so they they had to convince us to all of this that there was something wrong with all of us and their educated people would be there to in fact fix us right so we see how that's all worked out right <laughs> so anyway so well, be safe out there. Goodbye for now. I will hopefully chat with you later because now this will be a very um, a lighter thing for me to cover because we're getting into the territory of the movies and um, how all that manipulation got picked up from early workings actually with this Frankfurt group. So anyway, so be safe out there and I will chat with you later. Goodbye for now.